I've told you before that I was quite a Tolkien nerd when I was a kid. I used to really enjoy reading his many uh, different works in the fantasy genre. And I got really hooked by reading The Hobbit, which is a children's book written by J.R. Tolkien. But what I found was really interesting about the process of getting deeper into his fantasy literature was, is that as you went further into reading his stuff, it illuminated things that you had read earlier. So I read The Hobbit, then I read Lord of the Rings, then I read The Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales and all the many different scraps that he wrote. And then I went back to read The Hobbit and I realized that as great as The Hobbit was when I first read it, it was in fact like a tapestry where you look at it the first time and then you don't realize how much skill and ability went into it until you look behind and realize there's many different threads that have gone together to make this great. Reading that later literature helped me understand the earlier literature much better. The same is true when it comes to the scriptures. We have many times in the scriptures a, a picture that's placed before our eyes, a tapestry that's beautiful and intricate. But we in fact come to understand it much better and more deeply when we start pulling away some of those threads that have gone into it. The predecessors in the Old Testament, the ways that the person speaking, and in this case Jesus speaking in Luke's Gospel, relies on those who went before so that we who understand and, and listen to the things that went before can better understand the things that Jesus himself is saying. So I'd like to pull out some of those threads today in Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, as Jesus speaks about his longing to gather uh, the children of Jerusalem together like a hand gathers her brood under her wings. But in order to do that and to pull out those different strings, uh, we're going to look a little bit in the Old Testament and look at some of the pre uh, predecessors to what Jesus has to say. My hope then is to help us understand what he's saying to us and why it is that this word spoken to Israel 2,000 years ago is also a word spoken to us, uh, modern-day Christians in modern-day Canada. So let's look a little bit at what Jesus has to say, and then I want to go back to look at an earlier Old Testament figure named Jeremiah. Jesus says uh, in this passage here today, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, I long, Jerusalem, to gather you together to myself, but you wouldn't have it. And now the house is left to you, Jesus is saying, that there's a judgment on the temple of Israel, the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. Now you can look at that and say, well, that's interesting. But in fact, the, the depth and the layers of what Jesus is saying, I think, only becomes clear when we look at some of his predecessors. And as I mentioned, I think one of the things Jesus is modeling himself after and what he's talking about is an echo of what an earlier prophet named Jeremiah was speaking about. Jeremiah is a prophet famous in Israel, and he's a prophet who lived hundreds of years before Jesus. Jeremiah lived at a very dark time in Israel's history, and if you've heard me preach before about uh, Israel's destruction and how uh, they were uh, wrecked by the nation of Babylon, Jerus uh, Jeremiah lives at a time between two uh, invasions and, and, and destructions of Jerusalem. To explain that a little bit, Jeremiah uh, was um, living at a time where after many, many centuries in which Israel had its own kings, we heard about the great King David, the great King Solomon, lots of great kings where they expanded and had wealth and they had power. That power dwindled over the centuries. Their faithfulness to God dwindled as well. And we find the prophets being sent to Jerusalem again and again to say, stop worshiping idols and treat the poor better. And they didn't listen. Jeremiah comes on the scene right after the great nation of Babylon had come, pierced the walls of Jerusalem and crushed Israel's armies. Jerusalem had been laid waste. 
The Babylonians, which were the nations, or which were the uh, Middle East superpower at the time, had come. They had broken down the walls and the gates. They defeated Israel's armies, and they had also taken many of Israel's leadership class away to them. If uh, you listened in the song we sang, The Glory of These Forty Days, it mentioned Daniel and the lion's might. Well, Daniel was one of those people that was taken away to Babylon, and he was employed by the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Ezekiel the prophet had the same thing happen to him. But Jeremiah was one of those who were left behind. So here's where the problem comes. Jeremiah was come to, uh, has come to be known as the weeping prophet, not just because he saw Jerusalem laid waste, but because when the Babylonians left, they imposed tribute on Jerusalem. Instead of Jerusalem paying tribute, licking its wounds, and caring for those who had been hurt by the invasion, Jerusalem kept plotting against the Babylonians. Jeremiah came to them again and again and said, Look, you lost. The time has come now for you to hunker down. Take care of the poor and the broken who have been hurt so badly by this invasion. Repent of your ways where you've been robbing the, the widows and the orphans in your midst. You've been worshiping idols. Amend your ways. Get used to this situation and God will let you rise again. He's a weeping prophet because nobody would listen to him. Again and again, he would speak to them and say, turn and God will come to you and God will save you from this happening again. And instead, what happens? Israel continues to play footsie with the world powers, and Babylon eventually comes, destroys the temple, and carries off the last of Israel into captivity. It's a tough uh, passage to read through Jeremiah's works because it's again and again saying these things, and again and again him not being listened to. There's a particular passage that I think is really interesting in uh, in the ways that it sets the groundwork for what Jesus says in Luke's Gospel today. And that comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Listen to these words that Jeremiah says and see some of the parallels. Chapter 7, verse 2. So God comes to Jeremiah and he tells him these things. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, by which he means the temple in Jerusalem. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Later on he says, has this house, which is called by, not, by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. Listen to those themes that Jeremiah brings up. There's a house of the Lord. And Jeremiah is saying to you, look, you're saying we're safe. We have the temple. You've got God locked up safely in the temple. And nobody will touch this place because God is safely there. But God keeps saying to them, you don't understand. Through Jeremiah's words, he's saying, you are not letting me in. It's not that God refuses to come. They refuse to have the Lord in the temple. They think he's locked up, and in fact, he's locked out. How is God being locked out? He says, you are supposed to be a temple. This temple is supposed to be a sign. People look to this temple and say, I want to know what God is like. And they look to this temple and how it operates, and they should learn something about what God is like. God is a God of mercy and of justice. A God who loves the orphan and the widow, who does not shed innocent blood, who protects those who are weak. 
who does not consider it or who does not encourage people to bow down to creatures of stone and wood, but instead to worship the Most High God in whom uh, in whose image we were made. And instead, what are you doing? You're doing the opposite of these things. You're in the temple oppressing the orphan and the widow. You're robbing those who are innocent and killing them. You are doing things that reflect no, none of God's glory and you expect me to dwell in your house? I can't dwell in your house. If I dwelt there and said, I live in your house, what will people think of me? They will think, this is something I approve of. You are barring me from this temple. Do not say we are safe because God is here. Instead, you have walked me out. God here is longing to be with his people, Israel, and to change them, and Israel refuses to allow it. In fact, as Jeremiah says, this people has turned the temple into a den of robbers. These things are really important to hold on to because not only are they historically important, they also are things that I think Jesus is referring to in these passages. Listen to them again in Luke chapter 13. What does Jesus say? He says, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Notice the echo there. Jeremiah says, I want to come. God's spirit wants to inhabit the temple, but you will not let me in because you make no place for me in your lives, no place for me in your worship. There's nowhere for me to fit because your hearts are filled with murder and theft and adultery and idolatry. And Jesus says the same. When he is warned about Herod, what does he say in response? He says, look, I'm casting out demons. What else is he doing? He says, I'm casting out demons, performing cures today and tomorrow. What is Jesus doing? He's making lepers clean. He's making lame people uh, to be able to leap with joy, to make deaf people hear, to make blind people see. He's casting out those who are in the grip of evil and uncleanness. He is setting people free. And what is Israel's leadership doing? Get away from here. They have no interest in what Jesus does. In fact, later on, we find the, the continuing fights he has with the Pharisees. They claim that Jesus is doing these things under the influence of the devil. So desperate are they to preserve their own control and way of life that they will not allow Jesus one little foothold into their lives. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem in the same spirit that Jeremiah did, saying, how much I long to be with you, and you would not have it. Now your house is left to you. He's speaking about the house of the Lord. Do you notice how Jesus ends this little passage? It seems mysterious, but, but it's actually something really significant. He says, I will not come, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that phrase ring a bell for you? Well, it's almost been a year uh, since we last celebrated and heard those words, but those are words that are said on Palm Sunday. If we flip forward a few chapters in Luke's gospel, this is how it goes. Jesus, you may remember, is on a donkey. People are waving palms. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming into Jerusalem. And what are the people saying? The people were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Jesus says, I am coming again. I've been coming to free you, but now I'm coming to clear and reform the temple. What happens right after Jesus comes in, right after people say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, we're told in verse 45, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And, it, and he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus goes in, he overturns the tables, he casts people out because this temple was supposed to be a place 
of innocence, a place of justice, a place of mercy, and has become a den of robbers. Jesus is pointing back to Jeremiah's example and saying, I long to be with you, and because you refuse to allow me, eventually this temple will be reformed and torn down. Jesus, we are told in John's gospel, says, in three days, tear this temple down and I will raise it up, referring to himself. Jesus is replacing the temple with his own body. Now we look at that and we say to ourselves, okay, here Israel was unfaithful. Here it is that God is uh, giving a word of challenge and of judgment on Israel. And that's an interesting historical thing. But I'll tell you there's a real danger when we look at these judgment passages. Nobody likes to hear a word of judgment, of course. And so when we look at these and we get a little uncomfortable thinking, hmm, maybe Jesus is saying something to us. There's a tremendous temptation. Tremendous temptation is to say, yes, it's a word of judgment, and I'm so glad that somebody else is hearing it. Don't we all know when God sometimes speaks to us that what we really think is, yes, that's something that other person needs to hear, but so rarely do we think it's something we need to? One of the sad realities, the tragic realities of Christian history is the ways in which judgment passages like these were read not as a call for the church to reform itself, but as an opportunity to blame Jewish people and to say, aha, this is an example of how Jews have gone wrong. Sadly, uh, we're a Lutheran church. There's many things about Martin Luther's writing and his history that are fantastic, beautiful. But sadly, at the end of his life in particular, his bitterness towards the Jewish people is a sad stain on his record. Throughout many centuries, and it led, sadly, I think a contributing factor to the Holocaust was that that Lutheran strain in which sometimes the Jews were blamed instead of people looking into their own hearts has caused people to say, aha, here's an opportunity for us to hate other people. They're the problem, not us. And there's a serious problem because so often it feeds that tendency when we see something is wrong, instead of looking inside of ourselves and saying, what do we need to change? We say, aha, there's something out there that needs to change. And at its worst, something out there needs to be eliminated. And I mention that particularly because, of course, this week we've all heard probably the news in New Zealand of a man who took it upon himself to go and murder, it looks like, dozens of Muslim people in the midst of their prayers at a mosque. It's horrifying. But one of the things that's most horrifying about it is, is that, as often happens with crazed terrorists, he leaves a big manifesto giving his incoherent reasons for why he does what he does. But one of the things that seemed to come up in all of that is that he felt Western civilization is in decay. Things are changing for the worst. Communities are falling apart. We're losing our sense of identity. And instead of him saying, what can I do to change that? Can I build communities better? Can I do a better job of reaching out to neighbors? Can I take on leadership and set a good example for this world? Instead, he says, I know what the problem is. It's those Muslims. That's the problem. You know, sadly, it happens throughout history and across cultures. You know, we hear so many terrible things about ISIS in Syria and Iraq and how it is that they slaughter the Yazidi people. You look around at the the many wastes of the Middle East and how many people feel uncomfortable and a loss of identity instead of saying, what can I do to rebuild my culture? No, what I really need to do is eliminate those people who are the problem. It happens in Egypt, the Copts every year at Christmas and at Easter. When Egypt is going through economic turmoil, what's the problem? It must be those Coptic Christians. And what we have to do is burn or blow up their buildings. In China today, even though it's a communist secular government, that's the same thing going on when churches are torn down and, and Bible studies and small groups of Christians are driven underground. Instead of them saying, maybe we need to question our authoritarianism, instead, what is the question? How can we get rid of those who question us? So easily we look at these passages and the first response we have is, yes, those other people really need to answer for something. 
Now, I say that to us not because I think any of us are really in danger of going and desecrating a synagogue after hearing passages of judgment. I think, frankly, the greater challenge for most of us who accept the basic uh, commandment about not to murder, I think for most of us the real challenge is to say, yes, maybe this is a contemporary word, but it, it really is. It's a contemporary word not to my church, but to those fundamentalist churches over there. Or this is a word Jesus is delivering to those Roman Catholic churches. If they got their act together, then Christendom could be restored. Or maybe it's those liberal churches, or maybe it's those Pentecostal churches, or maybe it's the leadership of our church. Instead of asking the really serious question, is Jesus saying to Good Shepherd, I longed to gather you, my children, in the way that a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. Is Jesus saying that to us? Are we a, a place where the widow and the orphan, where the brokenhearted, where those who are, are, are grinding in poverty, where those who have no hope find a welcome? Are we a place where they come through this door and they say, there's a guarantee that regardless of where you come from and whether you're right or wrong, you will be welcomed and you will love? Does God look at this place and say, this place accurately reflects the love and the mercy of my son Jesus? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And perhaps that's even too easy. Maybe that's a responsibility for the church's leadership. But what about yourself? You know, St. Paul says something amazing in 1 Corinthians. He says that you and me and all who follow Christ are temples of the Holy Spirit. What did Jeremiah say about the temple of Israel? What did Jesus say about the temple of Israel? Is Jesus saying that about the temple of our own bodies? When people look to me and they say, this person claims Christ as their Lord, do I accurately reflect who Christ is? Do I oppress the alien? Do I ignore the cry of my neighbor? How do I treat my coworkers? How do I treat my children, my parents? Am I an accurate reflection of the love and the grace and the mercy of our God? It's the question to ask when Jesus says these hard words. To spend our Lenten season in preparation for the cross and in preparation for the even greater resurrection is to include in our prayer lives an honest question. Jesus, do you see something in me that needs to change? And if you do, will you give me the grace to change it? Because I want to better reflect who you are. That's what our church's prayer should be. As I said, that's a tough thing. It's, it's easy to sort of go and say, blame others, and instead, uh, Christ calls us to take this on ourselves. And I want to end with a word of positivity and encouragement for you. The fact is, is that when we hear words of challenge and of judgment, the reason we want to palm it off on somebody else is because they're hard to hear, right? But I'd like to suggest to you that there's, in fact, something strange that goes on when Jesus gives us a challenge. We tend to think of ourselves as people who are challenged, suck it up, and then there will be mercy sometime later on. I'll do this tough thing, or demand this tough thing of you, Jesus says, and then later I'll give you something good as a reward. I'd like to suggest to you that, in fact, the tough thing Jesus says is itself an act of mercy and grace. I'll give an example of the sort of thing that I mean. A few years ago, I was having a tough week, and to uh, top it all off, something went wrong with my car. So we all know what that's like. Oh my gosh, I'm actually going to have to pay for this thing. It's a huge inconvenience. And of course, uh, I usually take Mondays off, so I had to take the car in on Monday, and I'm waiting. Um, but the other thing that I found really challenging, all these things going on in the week, and I had to take my car in, but I couldn't find anybody to look after my youngest daughter. So on top of all that, I felt like, oh God, you've given me these things this week, and then I've got to do this, and then I've got to find something to do with my little daughter while I'm worrying about my, my car. So I take the car in, and then I go down and sit at McDonald's while I'm waiting there. But here's what I discovered. What am I going to do with my daughter? It's such a challenge. She saw things quite differently. 
I buy her a happy meal, and all the time we sat there, she babbles on about her life and about her day and about the things that she wants to do and how wonderful these McNuggets are. I saw this as, here's a burden I have to take on. What did she see it as? An opportunity to spend time with my father and enjoy some McNuggets. What I saw as a burden, she saw as a mercy and grace. It was exactly the same thing, the two sides of the same coin. Her reality was in fact the true one, and mine was the false forcing me to spend time with a little girl whose joy and exuberance and innocence was infectious, was in fact a tremendous mercy that God imposed upon me. Now that's a small thing, right? But I'd like to suggest that in fact that is the way God operates. We tend to think of a demand God makes on us as if he's laying a burden, and instead he's saying, I'm offering you to be free from burdens. Many of you will be, fam- uh, will be familiar with that famous story, A Christmas Carol, that Charles Dickens wrote about Ebenezer Scrooge and got these three ghosts that visit him. Uh, in fact, it's, it's four ghosts who visit him. He's got all these different ghosts who scare him, show him Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, scare him. But before that, his former business partner, Jacob Marley, comes to visit him. And what he is woken up by in the middle of the night is the sound of clinking chains. You know why? Jacob Marley comes to warn him and says, the way you are living is going to end up costing you a lot. And three ghosts from thenceforth will come to show you what life was like, what it's like now, and what's in store for you if you continue in your path. But I find that image so arresting and powerful. Because Jacob Marley comes to him, I can't remember the exact quote, but he's saying that the conduct of my life, the miserliness, the meanness, the attacks on others, I didn't realize it at the time, but in fact I was building chains that have bound me. And now I must carry these in eternity. Ebenezer Scrooge thought he was enriching his life by being miserly. In fact, what he was doing is he was making his soul smaller, becoming more and more mean, and in fact, becoming less and less an image of God. And Jacob Marley comes to him to say, God wants to free you from the chains you are putting on yourself. When God challenges you with something, to change your anger habits, to change your behavior with your neighbors, to become more merciful, to let things go, when they need to be let go. He is not coming to punish you and smack you around until finally later you get mercy. Mercy. His challenge is itself a mercy. Let me in, just like Jeremiah was saying. Let me gather you, as Jesus said. Let me into your life to allow my grace, my power, my mercy to work in you so you might be freed from this and become the person that God has made you to be. What is so terrible about Ebenezer Scrooge is that you look at him and he's a miserly character who is barely, barely living according to God's image. And how much greater he is at the end of that story because God freed him, the intervention of those ghosts, to become the person God made him to be a generous and loving person. That's what God wants us to be. And when he challenges us, that is what he's doing. Not just saying mercy will come later, but I'm saying my very challenge to you is an act of mercy. We simply need to ask God to have the eyes to see that when he challenges us, help us to see the good it is doing for us. And help us to know you will not leave us alone in the midst of it, but instead are giving your very self so that we might be reformed. The last word of encouragement, I wanted to read to you something that I've been reading uh, this week that I think really illustrates it well. Um, There's an anthology of poetry and readings from uh, different novels called Between Midnight and Dawn. It's um, compiled by Sarah Arthur. And there's this uh, quote I ran across this week as I was reading. It's, it's a set of Lenten devotions that come from literature. And this reading is from a novel by Frederick Buchner called Brendan. 
And it's, um, it's about a St. Brendan, and we don't know much about his life, so it's a historical fiction. So Bookner fills in some details we don't know about. But here's where this passage comes from. Brendan has been troubled because he's, he's got this sin in his life, and he feels like God is really challenging to get rid of it. So he goes off as a young man into a cave to pray and to fast and ask that God would heal him. And he's expecting God is pushing him to do this and him saying, well, eventually you'll get some mercy and some benefit out of it. But in fact, that's not what happens. Here he's describing to his friend Finn what goes on and what happened in that cave. There came angels at last, Finn, he said. They were spread out against the sky like a great reef. The closest were close enough to touch nearly. The farthest were farther than the stars. I never saw so many stars. I could hear the stillness of them. They were that still. Lofty and fair beyond telling was the angel's music, he said. They heard me cry and they answered me. They weren't singing to me of the mercy of God, Finn. Their singing itself was the mercy of God. In other words, God didn't give this man a pep talk. He just showed him a glimpse of the beauty of the Lord who is coming to him and the beauty of the Lord who will walk with him all the days of his life and his heart was lifted up. Just the way that my little daughter lifted my heart, not by telling me of mercy, but simply showing her joy to me and inviting me in. When Jesus knocks at the door of your heart, when he knocks at the door of this church, that's what he's asking. Will you let me in? Will you let my mercy in to bring light where there's darkness and to free you from your chains? Don't be afraid of the challenging word God gives to us because that challenging word is not meant to burden us. It's meant to free us. And the God who showed that vision to Brendan is the same God who raised Jesus from the dead and will raise us from despair and the things that bind us. If only we stop running away, stop closing the doors, and instead fling them wide so that the King of Glory might come in.